Brilliant. Thanks so much, Millie. It's great to see you all here today. Uh, before we begin, let me pray and I'll get rid of my chin guard before I do that. Father, we, we really do want to thank you so much that we can meet together in person. It's such a joy after so long um, apart. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you've sustained us through this lockdown time. Uh, we thank you so much that you are a faithful God. And we, we thank you too for your work in the life of Elizabeth Elliot. We thank you for how you proved your faithfulness to her. And we pray that um, as we listen to the story of her life, that you would encourage us, that you would lift our eyes up onto Christ, that you would show us afresh more of your character, your love, your goodness, and your grace. Amen. Brilliant. Well, it's great to see you all here today. Back in the early 2000s, just a, a year or two after the church was planted, a group of women, just like this one from CCM, met in the church flat, which is over there if you don't know, and they heard a talk from a visiting speaker. She was from America. There were more women than chairs. They sat on the floor, gathered at her feet to listen. And she was a tall, smartly dressed woman with white hair and blue eyes. Once she had been a very poised and powerful public speaker, but now her frame showed the fragility of an elderly woman. Her sharp mind and her equally sharp wits were succumbing to dementia. She was in her 70s back then, and she's still by some margin the oldest woman to ever speak at a CCM women's event. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. Well, who was Elizabeth Elliot? Actually, I'd be interested just for a show of hands if anyone does know the story of her life or quite a few of you have heard of her. Well, she's known for being a missionary to unreached tribes in Ecuador. And later in her life, she was a popular speaker and writer. She was married three times, but spent most of her early life single. Her first husband, Jim, died after a marriage of just two years. Her second marriage in her early 40s lasted just four years, and again, her husband died. And her third marriage lasted until she died in 2015. Well, it's hard to believe now, but in the 1950s, missionaries could become global celebrities. And if you know anything about Elizabeth Elliot, then it's probably because you've read or heard the story of how her husband, Jim, was speared to death by an isolated tribe that he and four other missionaries were trying to reach. And when Jim and his four friends were first reported missing, it wasn't just the missionary community in Ecuador that were taking notes. There was a photojournalist sent from Life magazine from the US to Ecuador to document the events. And this uh, photojournalist was present even on the search party that was looking for the bodies. Elizabeth and the four widows immediately became household names. They received fan mail and even proposals of marriage. One farmer in the US wrote to them to say that he and his wife had named their five cows after the widows. And every morning when they milked the cows, he and his wife would pray for the widows. Barely a year after the death of her husband, she was commissioned by a publisher to write an account of the events uh, surrounding his death. And that book was Three Gates of Splendor, which you may have heard of or read. And it was a huge hit. It's become a Christian classic. It's a dramatic tale of faith and courage and of submission to God's will, even to death. 
and it was a real preview of the, the writing gifts that uh, God had given Elizabeth, and she went on to write many more books. You might also know that a few years later, Elizabeth had a remarkable opportunity to then go and live with a tribe who had killed her husband, and she took her young toddler, Valerie, with her. They went into the jungle, and they knew only two things for certain. Number one, God had opened a door for them to go at the invitation of the tribe. And number two, there was no guarantee that the, this tribe that was famously hostile to the outside world wouldn't kill them as they had also killed their, her husband. Now, of course, she lived to tell the tale. And we're going to hear about that today. As I've been reading about her life over the last couple of years, one thing that's really uh, stood out to me about Elizabeth Elliot was her radical obedience to God. She knew that discipleship requires a cross, and she wasn't afraid to pick up that cross and carry it. Well, I wonder if an introduction like that makes you want to know Elizabeth Elliot. And I, I wonder, actually, if some of us had met her, whether or not we would have liked her. She evidently could be quite reserved, maybe even cold, when you first met her. She was someone who wasn't afraid to be unpopular for calling other people to obey God or for telling the truth as she saw it. She was quite um, quick to deliver home truths to her loved ones. I actually watched her memorial service and one of her oldest friends um, stood up to, to sort of you know, give a, a little speech about Elizabeth. And she described knowing Elizabeth Elliot as being hit by a velvet-covered brick. And this lady actually brought a brick, brick with her. She had like a brick and a piece of velvet and held them up as props to illustrate her point. I don't know about you, but that's not really how I'd like to be remembered. But she clearly made an impression. She was a remarkable woman. But like all of us, she was flawed. She had ordinary struggles and she wrote about her life in the diary that she kept all her adult life. As a teenager, she was angsty about her appearance. As a young woman, she wondered how she could know God's will for her life. As a widow, she was often overwhelmed by her grief. And she didn't live life on a higher plane than the rest of us. She was a real person who knew real disappointments, losses, sufferings. She wrestled with real emotions and desires. Yet through it all, she walked the path of obedience to God. So this morning, I'm going to tell the story of her early life. So if uh, we get to sort of 30 minutes in, and she's still only 30 years old, don't panic. Um, we're, we're sort of stopping when she's in her mid-30s. And we're going to see, I think, that Elizabeth Elliot, from her earliest days, was walking that path of obedience. Long before she did the dramatic thing of going to the tribe that killed her husband, she was willing to trust God in the small things. Her willingness to trust him in the big things was shaped by thousands of other of tiny moments of decision. Well, she was born in Belgium to missionary parents called the Howards, and their family moved back to the US where they raised six children in a home that emphasized spiritual disciplines. Elizabeth back then was known as Betty, and when she was growing up, family devotions were twice daily with readings, hymns, and prayers. Assembly at the breakfast table was expected at precisely one minute to seven. And this regime was justified by her parents as GMT, in other words, good missionary training. It was a loving home as well as a, a disciplined one. It was full of laughter and fun. And the Howards treated their children as people who could think for themselves and make choices for themselves. 
they included them in adult conversation and they kept a big dictionary on the dining table and the, Betty and her siblings were supposed to look up any words that they didn't understand in the adult conversation. In later life, Betty recalled that even on the most exciting day of the year, when we went on vacation and left at five o'clock in the morning, we didn't skip family devotions. Even on Christmas morning, we didn't open presents until prayers were done. We grew up with the understanding that the scriptures were top priority. Aged 14, she left home for a Christian boarding school, and it was run by an exacting and eccentric former opera singer, Mrs. DuBose. The students were divided equally between the children of missionaries, known as MKs, the children of preachers, known as PKs, and the OKs, or ordinary kids. Mrs. DuBose's spiritual ambitions for her students were even higher than Betty's parents had for her. Mrs. DuBose used to say that her school was hand-cutting diamonds. Sunday night worship often included lengthy silences while Mrs. DuBose waited for the students to confess their lying or stealing or cutting corners at their chores. And she had the slightly eccentric practice of, of uh, calling individual students into her bedroom to tell them off for minor misdemeanors. And despite being one of the best behaved students in the school, Betty didn't escape her scrutiny. On one occasion, Betty was called into Mrs. DuBose's room and the, the experience was so stressful that Betty wet herself. So I think, I think actually Mrs. DuBose's teaching methods would be severely questioned today. <laughs> Fortunately, Betty survived. But from a young age, she was captivated by missionary stories. Mrs. DuBose used to quote from books by the Irish missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, and Betty developed a lifelong interest in Amy. In fact, she would later write a biography of her. Her, her interest in missionary stories had actually started at home. Her parents often hosted vision, visiting missionaries who were on furlough back in the States, and their guest book listed visitors from 42 different countries. When Betty was just a little girl, one visitor in particular made an impression. She also shared the name Betty, Betty Scott. She was in her 20s and a missionary in China. Just three years after she had dinner with the Howards, Betty Scott and her new husband, John Stamm, so she was Betty Stamm, were taken by communist soldiers and brutally beheaded. When the news reached the US, Christians everywhere were, were shocked. Betty Howard never forgot Betty Scott Stam. And in her Bible, she copied a prayer that Betty had written and prayed since her college days. And it goes like this. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself my all, my life, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou will, send me where thou will, and work out the, thy whole will in my life, at any cost, now and forever. Well, knowing what happened to Betty Scottsdam, I wonder how you would feel about praying that prayer for yourself. Teenage Betty Howard wasn't scared to pray it. She made that prayer her own. Now, Betty Howard's resolution to give up her own plans, purposes, desires, and hopes would be severely tested by her relationship with a certain Jim Elliott. 
They met at a Christian university called Wheaton College. They met in Greek class, and they'd both chosen this class because they were reasoning that it would better enable them to understand the New Testament in its original language and then be better able to translate the Bible into other languages. And at that time, Betty was writing in her diary about a growing burden that she felt for people who didn't have the scriptures in their language. She'd begun to pray about whether God might have her go specifically to a place where the gospel had never been heard. And Jim, too, was um, passionate about missions. He was, in fact, the president of the Student Foreign Missions Fellowship at the university. He used to organize prayer rotors with the aim of praying more Wheaton students into overseas missionary service. And in fact, evidently those prayers were answered because more Wheaton students went overseas for mission in those years than before or after the time that Jim was there. Jim was working quite hard on some of his friends to get them to go to the mission field with him. And one of those friends, Ed McCulley, was persuaded to give up his ambitions of being a lawyer to go to Ecuador and ultimately, he would be killed alongside Jim. Well, over the course of her final year at college in 1948, Betty and Jim got to know each other better. And they attended a Christian convention on one of their dates. They were thrilled by reports of God's work around the world. And her diary entry that day revealed how moved she was by the need for the gospel to be told elsewhere. She wrote this. But oh, those, those, sorry, 100,000 souls who perished in blackness of darkness forever today, what am I doing about it? God, give me love. The very next sentence in her diary reveals that, that she has sort of mixed emotions going on in her heart that day. She wrote, Jim is without exception the finest fellow I have ever met. After college, Jim and Betty conducted a long-distance relationship for four years, mostly by letter. They were quite different characters. Jim was an outgoing, personable man who liked praying planks, pranks excuse me, on his friends and who wore his heart on his sleeve. Betty was more introverted, quite straight-laced, and when it came to her feelings, a closed book. But they perfectly matched each other in their zeal for God, and their readiness to make sacrifices for him. For a long time, Jim and Betty wondered if their love for each other would be such a sacrifice. So they constrained their feelings. They shared their thoughts with one another and they wrote back and forth, but they told only their private diaries how they really felt for each other. They dreamed of a future together, but they made no plans to get married. Instead, they pursued independent paths to the mission field, and they were thankful when they both ended up in Ecuador. Jim especially wrestled with whether God wanted him to abandon marriage and, and stay single. Now, unsurprisingly, that was romantic torture. And not long after she arrived in Ecuador, Betty learned that her sister, who was seven years younger than her, was engaged. And then her younger brother Dave and his wife had had their first baby. And their good news, although she was happy for them, it highlighted her own discontent. A friend of Jim's and Betty's wrote in a letter, Betty is moody and quiet. Senora says that she has come across Betty crying alone at night. Jim said late last night that he and Betty spent more time crying than talking. All these joys came to her brother and sister younger than she is, and still she has no firm promise, no engagement, and no prospected wedding time. Whilst Jim's friends despaired of him, 
and Betty's friends despaired of him. The, the thing that kept her sane in the anguish of it all was simply that she believed Jim Elliot belonged to Christ before he belonged to her. And she determined to hold him with an open hand, to allow God to give or take away as he desired. So every time her feelings overwhelmed her, and that was often over the five years, she submitted them again to God. When the longed-for proposal did not appear, Betty decided to make plans for her following year in Ecuador alone. She had come across two British women, and they needed a linguist who, um, a linguist to help them decipher a tribal language. And Betty had linguistics training, so she saw an opening there that she could meet a need that they had. And she travelled across Ecuador in the opposite direction to Jim, and landed in a small village in a muddy jungle clearing. That village was called San Miguel de los Colorados, and Betty spent the next nine months there. The Colorados, known as the Sachila people, are an indigenous people in Ecuador who lived traditional lives in the forest. They didn't have their language in a written form, and so it couldn't be easily learned by foreigners. And Betty's task was to use her linguistic training to pick apart the Tsaviki language to classify individual sounds and words, to learn the patterns of speech and grammar, and painstakingly create an alphabet. And that would be the first step towards uh, a written language, and then that would be the first step towards Bible translation among the Colorados. It was a huge task, but with God's help, Betty determined that she would do it. Surely he would bless such noble efforts. After all, it was for the sake of God's gospel that she was there in that humid, muddy jungle clearing. Surely he wanted to see the Colorado saved. So she prayed and she set about her work. Now, Betty's work depended on the help of one man in particular. His name was Don Macario. And Macario was unique. He was a Christian. He was fluent in both Tsafiki and Spanish. And because Betty spoke Spanish, it meant they could communicate. And it meant that he was perfectly placed to help Betty master the language. So she paid him a small wage, and then she would interrogate him, study the shape of his mouth, and try to imitate his speech. One morning before language work, Betty was reading this passage from 1 Peter in her daily devotional. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Immediately after reading those words, Betty heard gunshots. That was nothing unusual because many people hunted around the area. But then she heard a commotion outside her jungle shack and the voice of her missionary colleague Doreen called out, They've killed Don Macario. He'd been shot point blank in the head, perhaps in some sort of dispute about who owned a piece of land. And they laid out Don Macario's body on a poncho in the square. Doreen performed a grisly operation to retrieve the bullet, which would be needed as evidence in a trial if the culprits were ever found. And the people held awake overnight. They drank coffee, they sung hymns around the corpse. And Betty wrote to her parents, it was the most nightmarish day of my life. The nightmare for Betty was not only being confronted with the finality of death, it was the finality that Macario's death brought to her language work. 
Without him, hope of the gospel going to the Colorado people in their own tongue was lost. And this brought about a crisis of faith for her. She couldn't explain why God would allow the death of the one person who was crucial for her work to continue. She had thought that Macario was God's answer to her prayers. She wrote, I felt like a son who had asked for a fish but had been given a scorpion. This was the first of a whole series of losses that would characterize her missionary career. You see, Betty's upbringing had closely aligned obedience with success. But less than a year in, she had to unlearn quite a simplistic idea that when I put in my obedience, my prayers, my hard work, my blood, sweat and tears, then God will and must deliver on my expectations. To Betty, God had delivered only disappointment and loss. Soon afterwards, there would be a second loss. After she left the village San Miguel de los Colorados, she received news that all her language notes and the alphabet that she had finally managed to devise for the Sviki language, it had been lost. Nine months of work had fallen or been stolen uh, off the back of a truck in a suitcase. They couldn't be found and there were no copies. Betty had been dealt a double blow. She started to doubt whether God really wanted her in Ecuador in the first place. She wondered what on earth the Lord was doing. She believed in his sovereignty, but didn't he want her missionary work to be a success? She wrestled with God over what seemed to be a stunning array of evidence that he just didn't care. She wrote, it was a long time before I came to the realization that it is in our acceptance of what is given that God gives himself. Even the son of God had to learn obedience through what he suffered. Betty was learning to love God for who he is more than what he gives. Since her earliest years, she knew God was to be trusted and obeyed. But never before had she had to obey God just because of who he is. Previously, her obedience seemed to result in a reward or success of some kind. Now her obedience was just left in ashes. The loss of Don Macario, the loss of her language work, that would be a training ground that prepared her for a much more costly obedience to come. Well, let's fast forward. Two and a half years later, Betty has learned a different indigenous language. She and Jim are now married and they have a baby daughter, Valerie. And they're living in a jungle outstation and working with the Quechua people, teaching children, doing basic medical work, evangelism, training young church leaders. There's plenty to be getting on with where they are, including translation, translating bits of the Bible into the Quechua language. But the Elliots have got their sights set elsewhere. They're longing to reach this mysterious tribe, a tribe who were an enigma to the outside world and completely untouched by the gospel. At that time, all people knew about the Waldani was that they killed virtually every stranger that they came into contact with, and they would use their long hunting spears to do that. They, they weren't just violent towards outsiders, they were violent to one another as well. Often they would kill their own people in retaliation for some long-held grudge between family groups. And actually this was a very self-destructive path, unsurprisingly. Anthropologists later worked out that by about 1956, every six or seven out of every ten deaths of the Waldani were due to internal violence within the tribe. So they're literally killing themselves. So Jim and his four friends began to plan and to pray. 
and they came up with an ingenious way of making contact with the tribe. One of the five, Nate Saint, was a pilot, and he began to survey the Waldani territory from above. He would attach a bucket to a long rope, place a gift in the bucket, and then lower it from the plane above a Waldani settlement. Nate would circle the plane above, and then slowly the bucket would come to almost a standstill um, above ground level. To their surprise and joy, the Waldani started to receive the gifts and even send return gifts in the buckets. And they, they pulled it up to the plane and they found a feathered headdress, food, bits of pottery, even once a pet parrot. And one day, Jim even spotted a Waldani house that seemed to have a model aeroplane carved onto the roof. And then next to it, he saw an old man waving with both arms in what seemed to be, to Jim, a signal for them to come down. So, friendly contact had been established, and now the next step would be to visit the Waldani territory in person. The five men were thinking and planning and praying with their wives about it, and initially, Betty felt that she, could, she should go with Jim. She reasoned that the presence of a woman and child would indicate that they came in peace and be less likely to incite violence. However, she didn't get her way. Ultimately, she had to stay at home. The families then spent that Christmas together, and Nate Saint wrote in his diary of the tension that he felt between their own joyful, festive celebrations and then the generations of Waldani, who had no Christmas, no knowledge of the Lord, who were dying without hope. In early 1956, the men landed finally in Waldani territory and they set up camp. Two nights passed, and then incredibly, three Waldani appeared out of the jungle, a man and two women. They were completely naked, wearing just the traditional string around their waist. And they came over, chatting away as if they were understood. They ate food that they were given, and the Waldani man even got a ride in the aeroplane. Later that day, they returned into the jungle where they'd come from, and Jim and his friends were ecstatic. They spent the next day hoping and praying for a return visit. And in preparation for the trip, Jim had actually managed to learn some, or what he thought were Waldani phrases. He'd, he knew a woman, um, a Waldani woman called Dayuma. She was the only Waldani person who was known to have left the jungle. Um, she'd done that years before as a teenager. And she taught him some uh, Waldani phrases, though in actual fact she'd kind of forgotten her Waldani, so he wasn't really speaking correctly. But he, um, one of the last photos of him shows Jim stripped to his underpants because it's so hot, in a river, just sort of shouting into the forest, into the jungle, um, for what seemed to be friendly greetings. So they waited. Another night passed, and in the morning, Nate flew over the jungle he saw an even larger group of Waldani were approaching their camp. With excitement, he radioed his wife to say that they were expecting company and he would call again at 4.30 p.m. However, 4.30 appeared and there was no call. The next morning, still no contact from the men. So a search party was launched. And eventually, a few days later, the grim discovery, five bodies, each of them unmistakably killed by Waldani spears. Over the following months, Betty poured out her heart in her diaries. 
she was overwhelmed with grief. But instead of packing up and heading straight for home, she was determined to stay on. And her grief seemed to intensify two desires in her heart. The first desire was that the Lord would take her to be with Christ, where Jim now was. Her second desire was that he would take her to be with the Waldani. One evening she wrote, I am left with a vast loneliness of Jim for his love. The only answer it seems for me is that God will take me soon. How can I live without Jim, Lord? You made us one. How can I go on alone? Oh Lord, if it be possible, take me to be with you. Nevertheless, not my will. Another diary entry read, I sobbed uncontrollably reading Jim's letters. Sometime later, my life with Jim is now closed. No more babies. None of the hoped for trips we talked of. No improvements on the house. Nothing to look forward to but heaven. And this gives me perfect peace. I have no fears, no hopes, no ambitions, no regrets, no frustrations now, really, apart from the hope which is in God. And if one must call it ambition, the desire for the Waldani. Again, she writes, I am possessed as never before with a consuming desire for the Waldani. I can hardly think of anything else when I'm not concentrating on translation or something. Oh Lord, will you let me go? Well, less than two years after her husband died, Betty's opportunity to go came. The Lord answered her prayer and two Waldani women left the jungle. They appeared on the doorstep of lo local Kichwas who took them in and seemed to... The women seemed to show no intention of leaving. So Betty heard about this and went to meet them. And when she arrived, she actually recognized the face of the older woman because the men had taken photographs of the two women and the Waldani man who'd visited them before they were killed. And those photographs had been developed. The older woman was one of those three visitors, one of the last people to see Jim Elliott alive. Betty learned that the women's names were Mangamu and Mintaka. Betty called them M&M for short. M&M, in turn, called Betty by the name Gikari. Betty, still not familiar with the Waldani language, was wondering what on earth it meant. Skinny, pale, tall, foreigner, idiot? She decided idiot seemed most likely because she barely understood a thing they said. In fact, the Waldani language was an isolated language, so it had no reference point. It was not related to any other language on earth, and so it was especially difficult to learn. Betty spent several months with M&M, trying to learn how to communicate with them. And she began to realize that many of the stories that they told involved violent killings, where one killing would lead to many more as the family of the victim would attack the perpetrator's family in vengeance. Violence seemed to be embedded in the Wadani way of life. Actually, as it turned out, M&M were related to the other Wadani women who'd left the jungle, Dayuma. And Dayuma, as it happened, had been befriended a few years ago, a few years previously, by another missionary, Rachel Saint. Rachel Saint was the sister of Nate Saint, the pilot who was killed alongside Jim. And it was these friendships between American and Waldani women that resulted in peaceful contact at last with the tribe. They hatched a plan. Dayuma, Mangamu, and Mintaka would return to the jungle and tell their families about Betty. 
and God willing, they would return with an invitation for the Americans to visit. The three women went, and three weeks later, they returned with just that invitation. Rachel, Betty, and Valerie, they were welcome to come and live among the tribe, peacefully. So they went, and they went knowing that there was no guarantee that the Waldani wouldn't turn on them as they had on, on Jim and Nate and the others. But they went confident that God had opened the door, and they had to take the opportunity. After days trekking through the jungle, they finally arrived at the Waldani settlement. And it was the 8th of October, 1958, which was a poignant date for Betty. The 8th of October was both Jim's birthday and their wedding anniversary. She wrote in her diary, today is Jim's 31st birthday, our fifth wedding anniversary. And today I met one of my husband's killers, Kimu. He welcomed us with a smile. At that moment, Valerie stared at Kimu and said to me, he looks like a daddy. Is he my daddy? Betty could only think, no, he's the man who killed your daddy. It was completely extraordinary. There she was living side by side with her husband's killers. And yet life in the camp was also so very ordinary. The Waldani didn't actually seem like murderous monsters. And she... She got along with them well. She settled into patterns of life in the camp. She did as they did. She cooked plantain in clay pots on a fire. She slept in a hammock. She fished, fished, fished in, in a stream with her hands. And she began to see the Waldani as fellow human beings. She even admired them. Their life was simple. They didn't have all the distractions and burdens of possessions. And life in the jungle was uncomfortable, but they endured it without complaining. As time passed, Betty found out what had happened to Jim and who was involved in the killings. It turned out that that day, a dispute had arisen among the Waldani, and in order to deflect, in order to deflect attention from himself, one Waldani man, uh, the one who'd visited Jim and his friends, he stirred up the other Waldani in rage against the foreigners, and that, that instigated the attack. One morning, Betty watched a man named Minkai in the camp playing with the dogs, being tender with the babies, and she marveled. She wrote, how could it be that he could have killed Jim after all these months of living on tenterhooks, wandering, wandering, here I am, here they are, and we live in peace. Minkai later told, us about, told her about his involvement in the killings, and Betty translated his words into her diary. Minkai said, they didn't see us. We came upon them secretly. We killed them, not knowing. We didn't live thoughtfully then. Now we know. Now we think about God. We will not spear anymore. Ultimately, the Waldani would lay down their spears as the gospel spread among them in the coming years. And as Waldani became believers, they would go and reach other Waldani who lived deep in the jungle with the news about God's son, Jesus, who didn't spear his enemies but died for them. Not everyone in the tribe became a Christian, far from it, but the killings slowly decreased. And even though they were destroying themselves, there was, there was simply no mechanism in Waldani culture to stop the violence, so it required some, something to come in from outside. And that, that way, that different way, came with Rachel Saint and Betty Elliott. They were family members of men who'd been killed by Waldani spears, but they weren't seeking vengeance. 
they came in peace. However, the first person to share the gospel with the tribe would not be an American missionary. It was, in fact, a Waldani woman, Dayuma. She had learned countless Bible stories from Rachel during the years that she'd spent outside the jungle. Dayuma had been baptized, and she was thought to be the first Waldani convert. And when she eventually went back to her own people, she was determined that they would also learn the Bible stories. Now, in Waldani culture, it was totally alien to sit still and listen to someone talk. So through sheer force of her personality, Dayuma would just gather everyone around and tell them stories, often interrupting herself to tell people to shut up. Some of the Waldoni were quick to profess faith, but Betty privately wondered how many of them really understood enough to be genuine converts and how many were simply doing what Dayuma told them to. Dayuma wasn't just determined to improve her people's spiritual prospects. She'd lived outside the, the tribe. She knew how other Ecuadorians looked down upon the Waldani because they didn't wear clothes, they wore balsa earplugs, and they kind of stretched their earlobes. And they um, didn't have any money or trade goods. They, they kept their hair long. And Dayuma wanted to civilize them. She brought with herself a knowledge of the, out, how, the outside world and how it worked. So she bought them clothes and made them wear them. She made them cut, cut their hair and take out their earplugs. And privately, Betty lamented how the traditional Waldani way of life was being eroded. However, God was working out his perfect plan through flawed human servant, servants in imperfect circumstances. And this was no more true of Betty and Rachel. They were a very unlikely pair to send into the jungle together. When one of the other widows heard that Betty and Rachel would go to the Waldani together, she said, I just groaned. They were two strong-willed, opinionated women. They were both sincere Christians, both devoted to God, both willing to make huge sacrifices for others. But Betty and Rachel didn't get along. They didn't agree with each other on anything not translation methods, not missionary philosophy, at times even their interpretation of the Bible, where Rachel saw only black and white, Betty saw shades of gray. And over the two years they spent with the tribe, it became clear that they couldn't work together. And this eventually would be the reason that, that Betty left. She wrestled with the state of their relationship. She felt useless. Rachel didn't seem to want her help with linguistics or Bible translation, even though Betty was gifted at the work. Rachel also controlled access to Dayuma. Rachel would teach her Bible stories and principles, and Dayuma, in turn, would teach the Waldani. And there was little left for Betty to do except to offer occasional medical care. Finally, Betty came to the decision to take Valerie and leave. She left the tribe and Rachel Saint behind. Betty wrote, Once more, I have had to face the lesson that he works in the most inscrutable ways i.e. beyond human understanding. How can we see God's hand in such a terrible thing as the lack of unity and understanding and tolerance between two fellow missionaries? Well, to conclude, Rachel Saint lived among the Waldani for the rest of her life. Betty returned to the US and became known as Elizabeth Elliot. She authored over 20 books and traveled widely as a speaker and a writer and a radio host. Her missionary career, however, had been a failure. She was a talented linguist, 
but a substantial amount of her work was lost or not wanted. She lost a husband, and through that loss, she was confronted with the mysteriousness of God's ways. She saw God answer extraordinary prayers, but never in the way that she wanted or expected. She saw God's saving work firsthand, but the cost was deep suffering, the suffering of her own grief and the grief of four other men's families. Incredibly, Betty became a sister in Christ and a friend to her husband's killers. Yet her relationship with a fellow missionary was full of strife. Yet through it all, she trusted and she obeyed. She was humbled through what she suffered. She was tested and she came out of the Ecuadorian jungle testifying to the goodness and grace of God, a God whose ways are beyond our understanding. Let me pray. Father, we praise you so much that you are a good God. We thank you uh, for sending your son into the world to die for his enemies. We thank you that each of us are recipients of your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would be helping us to walk the same path as Betty Elliott. Help us to walk the path of trust and obedience. Help us to trust you even when your ways don't make sense to us. And we pray, Lord, that for your glory and our good. Amen.